pastor's message this morning is entitled Honoring Government on Independence Day. And the text is taken from Romans chapter 13, verses 2 through 7. Whosoever therefore resists the power, resists the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Will you then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if you do that which is evil, be afraid. For he bears not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon them that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must need be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For this cause, pay tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Amen. I want to open our sermon in a prayer that was given by the first president of our nation, uh, George Washington. He prays that God would have you and the state over which you preside in his holy protection, that he would incline the hearts of the citizens to cultivate a spirit of subordination and obedience to government, to entertain a brotherly affection and love for one another, for their fellow citizens of the United States at large, and particularly for their brethren who have served in the field. And finally, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice, to love mercy, and to demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. And without an humble imitation, imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. That was the first president of our nation praying a prayer that should be prayed by all of us today as believers. And it coincides rightly with what we have been learning in Romans 13 already, the two previous sermons that I preached, and now this morning. This was not planned by me to be preaching on Romans 13 on this day. I didn't put this on my calendar two years ago or two and a half years ago when we started Romans. In God's providence, this is how it's worked out. On the 245th anniversary of the founding of our country, because of a declaration that was written by a Continental Congress on July 4, 1776, while in the midst of a revolutionary war. Did you notice that President George Washington prayed that we would be obedient, even submissive, to government? And he was the presiding general, the, the highest commander in the American colonies, of the American colonies, in a revolutionary act against England. Great Britain, I should say. It should cause us all a bit of pause and should somewhat take our breath away 
should make us dig our noses in the history books, maybe. Is that okay? Can, can we balance those things with history, with scripture? I'm not going to deal with that primarily today. We are going to come back to what it means to be an American celebrating Independence Day. I plan to celebrate Independence today. We're going to go to Hanalei against my best wishes. We're going to go there. But for the sake of others that I love, I'm going. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to try to celebrate the independence that we have as a nation and the freedom that marks that day. The, identif the identity of this nation as a unique sovereign nation, not in the real sense of sovereignty, but in the limited sense of sovereignty, which is a whole different issue. Romans 13, we've seen thus far, is a framework for how government ought to act and how citizens ought to act in light of that governing authority. We are to submit ourselves, subject ourselves to the governing authorities. They are ordained or established, instituted by God. Their purpose is that they suppress or oppress the evildoer and promote or praise the good, those who do good. That's a good thing, and we'll consider that again today. We, we know that this fits within the context that Paul is writing here between these moral uh, descriptions of how Christians ought to act in the world, be, as we'll see again today, because there is a defense for those who do good in this in the way that God has prescribed government to act, there is a defense for those who do good. Now we come to this with the knowledge that we don't always act the way we ought to act, and the government doesn't always act within the Im implied prescription or the, the lines that they act here are said to be acting in this text. But I want to argue that today, especially as we see this unfold in Romans 13, Government ought to be something that Christians thank God for. And I even mean, when we come to this text, when we pay taxes. You could have agreed with that first statement, and the second, you're ready for a revolution already. And we'll get to that. This is a very complex matter when you sit down and you consider all that's at stake. But first, I want us to consider in verse 2, what is at stake when we resist the government? He says here two things. Therefore, who resists or opposed, opposed government, that is to act in opposition to it, to act against it, the authorities? Now, this is the same word, authorities, that we'll see in verse 1, and we'll see again that follows. And this as I said in verse 1, regards a hierarchy. We are to subject, that means put ourselves under authorities, which are also translated higher powers, rightly so. There is a hierarchy here in the text that is described between citizens and government. Therefore, whoever resists, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this logically follows from verse 1. All authority God has instituted, and government is one of them. Every person or every soul, therefore, ought to subject themselves to governing authorities. The reason being is that all authority derives from God himself, the final authority. 
and has been instituted by God. Your home, if you're a father, that authority, if you're a mother, your authority is from God in the home. As a business owner, that authority comes from God. Your authority does not just come by mere uh, human will or, or ideals. We might, uh, we might prescribe it in the way that we govern or the way that we uh, organize systems, but even that derives itself from that which God has first given authority to. And the first result of resistance to governmental authority is that, in fact, you resist God's authority. Notice that's how he puts it there. Whoever resists, resists what God has appointed. It's not so much that when we resist governments, we resist the government per se themselves. Paul is saying it's bigger than that. It's bigger than them. It's that you actually resist what God has appointed. You are resisting God. Now, that's unwise, to say the the least. It's unwise to resist God, who has everything at his disposal, who is all-powerful, who's all-knowing. You cannot flee from his presence. To do so, as as God said to Paul when he revealed himself, how long will you kick against the prick? Now, the prick was not something you wanted to kick against there. It was a prod for an animal. It had a pointy end, and you kicking against it does yourself harm. And this is what resisting God does. It's what resisting government, in a sense, will do. It will be self-defeating. But the second consequence is more, a result is more of a consequence that he lays out. As a result, those who resist will incur judgment. So anyone who thinks that they can defy government And there's a lot of that these days. I want to warn you against getting caught up. Now, I'm I'm a conservative, politically speaking. Uh, That doesn't mean I'm not liberal when it comes to graces or mercy. The term liberal has a rich and important history in the West and in the church. Nowadays, it it has a different meaning altogether. but, But when it comes to politics, economics, I'm definitely more characteristic of a conservative. But lumped in the conservatives now are those who are outright anarchists now and and some who are not so much in the anarchy realm but are in the the more licensed, the the ones who believe in in, uh, so limited of government that the government shouldn't even have anything to do with with how the citizens act. this is, a, this is not what we see here. There is the prerogative of the government to act authoritatively over its citizens. That's the role, in, in some ways, of a government, to act in that way. That's the way it keeps order. That's the way it has opportunity to defend the good and make justice happen with regards to the evildoer, to the wicked in society, to the immoral. And so those who resist the government will incur judgment. But who is meeting out this judgment? This this is a uh, question that comes up here. Is it God or is it the government? You know, you're offending God when you resist the government, but who actually is, is bringing the judgment about? And I believe that this is the judgment of God, but it's brought about by 
the government that he's ordained. It's meted out by the government. And this accords best with the context. If we offend the government, we are in fact offending God. Therefore, the judgment of God comes upon us by the one whom he's ordained, namely the government. We should expect this. And this will come very clear as we go further into the text. Secondly, the righteousness of God established is established in government. The righteousness, I'm sorry, of God's establishment of government. That is, I want to draw your attention to the good of government, to the purpose of government, that it is a good thing. Verses 3 through 5. Paul is speaking here, and keep this in mind, to how governments and citizens ought to relate together to each other under God and his purpose in it. This does not, as I said, this is not Paul describing something that is the case. He's, as I said, he's arrested in every city he goes for preaching the gospel, something that is good. He's not describing the way it is always, but the way God has ordained that it ought to be. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Just three observations from these texts. The first is, this should be an encouragement to Christians. You know how you are taught to live in Scripture? is to do good. He says here that government is not a terror to those who practice good conduct. And that's how we are taught to live. That's how we've been called to live as slaves in chapter 6 to righteousness. He's just described in chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Now, remember the mechanism that I just argued for. The wrath of God could be the government bringing judgment upon those who harm you if you're doing well. From what we just learned in verse 2. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For, sight, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we read that rulers are, negatively speaking, not a terror or to be feared by those who do good, who practice good conduct, but to those who do evil practice evil conduct that should be encouraging to us as believers if you live in agreement with God's word God has ordained that government is not a terror to you should not be a terror to you then positively speaking do what is good he says and you will receive his approval or it can be rendered praise you can receive benefits now Historically in our country, we can see how this has worked out. Those who abide within the structures of the law would have a benefit or would be benefited within the broader society. 
even with regards to the church as a whole and the charitable contributions of the church, our organization, not just ours, but the church as a whole, and, and those who would follow in suit, now, in the, in the last, what, 70 years ago, we became what was called tax-exempt. And that was because churches, they wanted the same charitable qualities that churches had been known for historically to continue so that taxes would not be such a burden on us so that we wouldn't cease to be charitable. That was the purpose of those laws. So our doing good was, was blessed by the state. So doing good ought to be praised. Doing evil will result in reason to be fearful or terror from the government. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talks about the fruits of the Spirit. And at the end, love, joy, peace, and on, at the end it says, against which there is no law. Christians live according to the Spirit. Chapter 8, verses 4 through 11 is we have the mind of the Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit. When we do that, we live in a way that anybody who has any reasonableness of mind, even unbelievers, now there's a reprobate quality back in Romans 1 that I believe we're living in right now. But, but reasonably speaking, you don't want to quench or you don't want to harm those who love their neighbor as themselves, who are honest, who treat people with dignity, who don't lie and steal and harm and murder and kill and do violence. That's what we're called to be. Romans chapter 13, 8 and through 10 speaks about those qualities. The fulfillment of the law is love to your neighbor. That's how we're opting ought to live. That's the ought of the Christian life. And yet, if we did that, and if the government was doing what it ought, it would be encouraging to us. When we don't have the, the right to respond, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as Jesus taught us not to, as Paul has just taught us, don't seek vengeance when people do you wrong, but God has ordained government that we can go to and we can say, as I said last week, the neighbor threw his rubbish over on my side of the fence again. Instead of making that into an all-out war, we can go to the government and say, would you justly judge between us? This is good. Do you thank God for that? We should, because it would, I believe, be an extraordinary thing to live in a chaotic society. And by extraordinary, I mean a terrifying thing to live with chaos. So we need to come to the the conception again, to to the terms of Scripture, and thank God for law and order that the government has a right to. The second observation is, is just that, the righteousness of the state to bring God's judgment, the sword. And I said we'd be considering that question brought up in verse 2 again. Who meets out the judgment described in the text? Is it God or government? It's God's wrath, it's God's judgment, but the state is enabled to meet that out. Verse 4, look at that. For he... That is, those who uphold and act, enact governmental law, ruler, it can be 
this ruler, he is God's servant. Now that's remarkable because we see that repeated three times in, in four verses, four, five, six, and seven. We see his minister. It comes from the Greek word diakonos, which we get the idea of the deacon from, the office of the deacon, the diakonos. He's a minister. Why? For your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. That's that terror we just read about. For he, the ruler, does not bear the sword. Now that sword is a symbol of enforcement. Some have uh, interpreted it to be a symbol of capital punishment. That's how far the government has a right to go. And indeed, a sword, if you take it as a symbol, is not a symbol that merely just uh, regards just power or authority or the right to judge. It does seem to be a symbol of that final judgment. Capital punishment, even. In vain. So it, they don't carry it for nothing. They don't have the right to judge for nothing. For he is a servant of God. Notice it again here. Two verse, this verse twice here. For he is the servant of God, and now his service is defined. What does the servant of God, this minister, the one who enacts and upholds the laws of the state, what is his service from God? He's an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, Paul, the apostles, deacons in the church, the office of the deacon is called servants. Gospel ministers in the New Testament are called this by the same phrase, servants of God. Here we have those who are leaders in the state, the government leaders, Described as servants of God in the same description, but in a different institution. Do you understand? Government, rule, government rulers are three times said to serve God in the capacity of praising good citizens while being an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. And that is when government acts in accordance with God's ordained purpose for them, they are enacting God's judgment in this sinful world to restrain evil. And to bring judgment on those who do it in society. And this implies that we cannot impose the rules for how Christians ought to govern personally on the state. Now, here's what I mean by that. This is a distinct institution given a distinct mandate as God's servants. Do you see that? governing authorities, and they have this right of the sword. God does not tell the church that you have the right to govern in this particular way. He's saying God has given the government this way, this authority. You see the distinction of institutions here that Paul's laying out? We should not expect nor desire the state then to, and I should say that, we should not expect the state to turn the other cheek when it comes to law and order. Do you understand? Now, that doesn't mean a state can't have mercy enveloped in its laws. And it definitely means, as accordance to what we're reading here, that there needs to be propriety with the law structure. So that when you run over your neighbor's lawn, you're not thrown in prison for a week. <laughs> you see what I mean? There needs to be a righteous 
development of law for the good of society is, is what's being balanced here. But that is the state's role, not the church's role, not primarily the family's role. It's the state's role. It's those who enact and uphold the laws of the state as ministers of God to fulfill that role in this sinful world. But we kick against that. We need to be careful about a spirit of rebellion that's in the world, but that tends to come into the hearts of Christians. And I'm speaking to the choir, myself included, here this morning. And it takes a lot of discernment. It takes wisdom to discern these things. The state's calling is to distribute justice and praise based upon what is here called good or wrong, as God defines it then. We have to understand that. Not just relativism. Not what modern society says, but how God defines good or wrong. Now, this also limits government itself, doesn't it? If Paul is saying this is, how, this is why this person is God's servant, to carry out this responsibility, he's not saying then that the government should be a retail industry or a healthcare industry or an educational industry. He's not prescribing those are the roles of government, is he? He's limiting that role. I believe in the limitation of government and personal responsibility. When citizens are not doing good, though, government will increase its role. We're seeing that played out in our day and age. The more immoral we as citizens become, the more government will increase its grip on authority and its own purview, in its own purview, will increase its reach for limiting the rights of citizenship. That's just necessary. If you're going to keep order in a society that will not order itself, our founding fathers understood that. When they wrote about freedom, they qualified that as being the life, liberty, and the produce, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They qualified that as being lived out by virtue, with virtue. And by virtue, we need to look back at what they meant. We are redefining virtue in a way that means chaos in our country. No doubt the government will increase its control and its reach. But here, notice the limitation. The government has a clear role and responsibility to judge the evildoer, to praise those who do well. That's a defining feature here in Scripture of a government's role and responsibility. Third observation, for fear and conscience sake. So we must be in subjection, verse 5. We must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God's ministers, the state, to be thrown into prison or whatever acts that that particular government may seem just or right in response to your wrongdoing. That's something to be in fear of. 
that should induce in us subjection. But then he says this, but also for the sake of conscience. What does that mean? For the sake of conscience means with the knowledge that God has ordained this. He's established them. You as a believer, with this knowledge, that knowledge alone, that conscience alone, should inform you to subject yourself to the state, to the laws of the state. Now that means a lot as Americans. To subject ourselves to the laws of the state might mean that we resist rulers of the state who don't enact those laws or who act contrary to the laws of the state. But it should be in our conscience that we know this, that we know that God has ordained this role for government, that they are his ministers, should mean that it's more than fear that restrains us and causes us to do right. But it's also the knowledge that God has ordained it. Do you want to please God? Then do what is right. Third, the third main point this morning, be our last, paying what is due, verses 6 and 7. For because of you, for, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities, again, that same word found in verse 1 and 2 and on, are ministers of God. Again, the third time there it's mentioned. Attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to him. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is, is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor. We'll, we'll consider respect and honor next week. Notice the connection to what has just come before. For because of this you also pay taxes. Now, taken this way, our consciences are brought to bear not only for submitting properly in conduct, but also in paying taxes. Do you see that? Because you know this, pay your taxes. And there are two simple principles that encourage us here to pay our taxes. And here they are. For the authorities are ministers of God, they're servants of God, attending to this very thing. That's the upholding of law and order. For the good of those who do good, and for fear, for the judgment of those who do evil. Here for the third time since verse 4, we see this term, the ministers of God. Now we see that our taxes as in this context, are here spoken of as a means to support these ministers in the outworking of their calling. Now, let me say something about these ministers. He is not saying that they're conscientious about their calling before God. As I've said, history is almost uh, as, it's almost uh, a part, it's almost integrated in history that governments will do evil. And, and governmental leaders can be extraordinarily evil. Tyrant is one term to describe an evil ruler. And when I say tyrant, we usually go right to evil rulers. And we know that history is full of them. So ministers of God does not necessarily mean that these leaders, these people in these positions, recognize God's authority over them, or in fact carry out their office with that conscience themselves. But this is for us. This is for you and I. 
Christian. But notice what it says here. That they actually attend to the very thing that their calling by God has called them to. Namely, to enact judgment, justice in the state. And apart from taxes, I think Paul's point is this. Governments don't have the means to keep law and order. They don't have the means to carry out their God-given calling. Therefore, when we are paying taxes, we are doing the will of God so that they can do the will of God. Now, who last year when you filed your taxes smiled and said, Thank you, Lord, that I'm able to do your will in this way. Let me remind you of something. Perhaps the primary reason for the American Revolution was taxation without representation. And here we are in Romans 13. Pay your taxes. And you're saying, man, you're against America, aren't you? I'm not against America. What I'm concerned with is that, for one, we don't get it wrong about the founding of our country, and then therefore run with that rebellious mindset so that we don't obey God here. You see, what happened with the founding of our country was massively complex. And if you boil it on down to the essence of what happened in the American Revolutionary War and the revolution, I believe the argument is rightly made that the American colonists, the revolutionists, were fighting for the upholding of British law while King George and the Parliament of England at the time were actually disobeying the law that they were to govern by. Now, the king of England at the time was not a sovereign who was outside of the law. He had the law governing him. And I believe the American colonists were right to call Britain, the government of Britain, to adhere to their own law. Do you see how complicated this is? They were, I believe, calling the government to obey Romans 13. The same reason why last year, and even now, when the mass mandates are still in effect, that I as a pastor am preaching to you without one, and I would never tell somebody, you may not come to this church if you don't have a mass mandate. There are ways that God's authority works in the complications of state and church authority and family authority, that we have to come to this text with discernment. Remember the implication of government here? To do good for those who do good. And not oppress, not subjugate, not be a terror to those who do good. Now, this doesn't mean that we carry ourselves in any government or every government with a sense of revolution. Not every government has laws. 
that support the freedoms that we do in this country. And to those citizens, those Christian citizens living in those countries, they need to follow the laws of those countries that limit their day-to-day freedoms as long as it doesn't contradict the word of God. In all of this, we have to stand in awe of what God has done for our good in government. You see, what I want from us today is what President Washington prayed for, that we would be the best citizens that this nation knows, that our nation knows. You know, we kind of grow up with an irreverence of authority. And and I want to say in this country, yes, the First Amendment guarantees the right to make fun of our leaders. It does give us that right. But God's word, as we'll see in verse 7, calls us to honor them. To pray for them in the epistle to Timothy. To subject ourselves to them as they're subjected to the law. You see, the law of our land is the Constitution. Our government enacts its authority in relationship to that. Are you praying that they do so accurately, honestly, with integrity? On this day, an Independence Day, when we celebrate our nation's independence, which I think it's right and good to do, are we praying for our nation? Are we honoring those in authority over us? Are we honoring God who has given us government in the way that he has? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, we have many uh, avenues of, of concern as to how to apply this text. But I think at the very base of it, we thank you. Thank you for ordaining and establishing government to this end. And we have to admit, Father, that as sinners ourselves, we don't do your will rightly every day. The governments that we see on this earth don't do your will rightly every day. Sin is in this world, and so our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our only hope in life and in death. And yet we say thank you for your word, for the revelation that you have revealed to us, to how, that, that teaches us how we can live in this sinful world in a way that promotes peace promotes the worship of your name, promotes the love of neighbor and the love of you until that day when Christ returns and his kingdom comes in fullness. And we pray that he come quickly. In Christ's name, amen.